We describe you as a veteran human rights lawyer. How would you describe yourself? As a man who's practiced law for almost 55 years, I hope that I made some little contribution to the freedom of the people of South Africa as a whole and some small difference in the lives of many people whom I defended. Who or what has shaped you? Too many things. I was born in a village. My primary schooling was there. I had a wonderful teacher, a refugee from Asia Minor, who had a very broad horizon of the world and the clouds of war were gathering in the middle and late 30s. And we were afraid of being occupied by the Italian fascist government and the German Nazi government. My father had been elected mayor of the village in 1934, but two years later, a dictator took over in Greece and he was stripped of his office. Uh, he recited poetry and freedom songs about Greek independence. Uh, as you may know, for 380 years, Greece was occupied by the Ottoman Empire. All these things shaped my life. The Nazi occupation of Greece in 1941 was a shock for my father and me, a 13-year-old at school. The schools closed. We witnessed uh, Stuka aeroplanes with their horrible noise and the black cross on the undercarriage of the wings. We were afraid, lived under Nazi occupation for about six weeks until Allied soldiers came to our place. My father, at considerable risk to himself, probably committed one of the acts of defiance of the Nazi occupation by taking New Zealand soldiers in a small boat to go to Crete without knowing that Crete was busy falling to the Germans with their paratroopers. Happily, we were picked up by HMS Kimberley of Mountbatten's flotilla, who was going to Crete to try and help in the evacuation of the Allied troops and the government of Greece on Crete. They took us to Alexandria, went into an orphanage. My father was in a refugee camp. The Italians were occupying part of Egypt. The Middle East Command, thank you to my father, arranged for a number of refugees, and particularly for my father and me, to be put on the second biggest ship in the world at the time, the Ile de France, and we were brought to Durban. I was disappointed to see how strong black men were put in rickshaws something that made a very bad impression on me because where I was born, things were transported by draft animals, mm. not by human beings. And then I didn't go to school for two and a half years. Cecilia Feinstein saw me behind the counter, working at the age of 15 plus, and she recognized me from a photograph of my father and me published in the Sunday Times. And she asked whether I was the boy that she saw in the photograph. I said, yes. And then she took it up with the people that I was working for and said that this was unacceptable. She was a teacher. She would come on Monday morning and take me to her school. 
and I did my standard six over again and my standard seven under her. And she arranged for me to go to Athlone High and had arranged with Frida Greenberg, the senior English mistress of that school, to look after me. Why did your mum stay behind? Why didn't she come with you and your dad? It was a very dangerous trip. My grandfather, my mother, my grandmother didn't want me to go, and I threatened that I was going to swim behind the boat (laughs) if they didn't take me along. We stayed here on a refugee permit until 1948, and then the nationalists came into power whilst I was a first student at Witz, and this was a great insult to the student body. And uh, it was there that you can possibly say that I was radicalized, for lack of a better word. Why, when you were at Witz, did you decide to study law? Because at school I was particularly interested in history. I was particularly interested by what was happening at the United Nations, about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Atlantic Charter. My generation was too young to fight, but old enough to understand why that war was being fought. My father wanted me to become a doctor. I didn't get in because preference was given to ex-servicemen, not women. (laughs) So much to my father's disappointment. I didn't even apply for medicine. And uh, I told my father that uh, I wasn't interested in doing medicine. I wanted to do law. Particularly influenced by a lecturer called Livingston. In political theory and government, we did Plato's Republic. And the first book of Plato's Republic is on justice. This was a great debate, what is meant by justice. That influenced me. You focused on human rights. Is it because of your experience in Greece and the war and the Nazism and fascism? When you come to the bar after you've studied, you can't really say what you are going to specialize in. Because of my student activism, As soon as I qualified, the first political case uh, I did was for a photographer who photographed a meeting in Sofiatown, Ellie Weinberg, who was banned from attending gatherings. He climbed the roof of a shack. He took pictures. I was asked to defend him by Ruth First, who had sent him there to take pictures. It got publicity. I was led by Vernon Berenger, who became my mentor. I uh, used an expression which he liked. Mr. Weinberg was not only absent from uh, the meeting, he was prominently absent from it. (laughs) And he said, hey, this is good stuff. (laughs) And he was acquitted. From what I understand, you did cases for Mandela and Tambo. Do you recall the first time that you met him or saw him, spoke to him? Eduardo Motlane, the Mozambican leader, was a student. There was a protest meeting against the university authorities for not standing up to the security police. And Nelson Mandela spoke. He was a most impressive man. He was introduced as one of the leaders of the Youth League. And thereafter, he was uh, my senior in the law faculty. I wasn't in the law faculty yet. I was still an art student. 
Fatima Mia's husband was uh, one of the people that was active in sort of uh, Gandhian uh, activity. Mm -hmm. This is how I came to meet him, and we became quite friendly. Nelson was a smart dresser. He was walking erect and upright, and he didn't bow and say, as your worship pleases, in a sort of subservient manner. I got quite a bit of work from Mandela and Tambo all over the country. In my little Morris mine, I went from dorp to dorp to do cases for people for comparatively petty offences, violations of the apartheid laws. What was it about him that impressed you? He was able to stand on a platform, really create a spellbound atmosphere because of his self-confidence, because of the way in which he was articulate, about how ardently he believed in freedom of all the people of South Africa. Originally, he was a nationalist, but I think with the defiance campaign and under the influence of Bram Fischer, Dr. Dadu, when he saw that Indian and colored and white people were prepared to go to jail, this is the beginning of his attitude that South Africa belongs to all of us. Why did you decide to do your memoir? I actually started my memoir a few years before the TRC. But what was happening in the TRC, as you will know, having taken a major part in reporting it, the murderers, abductors, torturers that had denied everything that we accused them of during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, all of a sudden, for the benefit of uh, amnesty, they would come and say and admit the very things that we uh, accused them of, and uh, to its shame, uh, justice exonerated them for the death of Biko, the death of Ahmed Timol, the deaths of the Craddock Four, and the others. And I thought, hey, newspaper reports can hardly put it in proper context. What I think I need to do for my profession, to the administration of justice, to the people of South Africa, to write not a personal memoir, but almost a documentary of what was done, what was said then, what they are saying now, and how they cheated justice to its shame. And this is why I stopped the biography and I concentrated on that. It became a little difficult to go back to the autobiography and then there were a lot of interruptions. There was a lot of work in the Legal Resources Center. And then I took the Changarai trial in Zimbabwe. Random House and Stephen Johnson, its head, were very patient, but I did get <laughs> calls every three months or so. When are you going to get down to it? About a year ago, I sort of said, enough is enough. We must get down to it and finish it. Many of my friends who hear me talk flatter me by telling me that I'm a raconteur, whatever that may mean. <laughs> they said, you must do it because it's important. Many people, particularly the young ones that I defended uh, arising out of the Soweto uprising, said, no, no, Mr. Bezos, we want you to tell the story for our children. But what the book is about is really what has happened in the trials. 
you know, the courtroom is the last forum of the oppressed. What do you do a man or a few of the women who say, I did contravene your laws, but you had no moral right to try me. And they proceed to speak about their personal experience and what happened to them, what happened to their parents, what happened to their grandparents, how the police behaved after a funeral. These, I think, are trials which bring to the fore how people suffered, how people were unjustly treated. The black people in South Africa have known oppression from cradle to the grave, and I wanted to write part of that history. You've chosen Odyssey to Freedom. Why did you choose the title? Having left in a small boat, having been in turbulent seas, having been picked up by a boat, taken a long time. And the word Odyssey has a secondary meaning, and that's a journey. And also, you will have noticed that I dedicated the book for those who let me walk with them. I have been fortunate that I crossed the path of some great people in South Africa. And without them, I would have just been another lawyer. But they made me what some people think I am. <laughs> I've been fortunate in uh, having undertaken this journey at the instance of great people, people who made real contributions to South Africa's history. Which was your most difficult or challenging case? The Rivania trial was a very challenging case because it was a matter of life and death. Nelson Mandela's heroic statement brought home to the international community that this was not a terrorist organization. This was a struggle for the freedom and the democratic human rights of the people of South Africa. I think Nelson's statement from the dock and the most articulate manner in which Sisulu spoke about the plight of the black people and governing Becky in a more intellectual and logical fashion persuaded this judge that these people were somewhat special and even that he could not bring himself to see them as equals. Not having had any contact with black or African people or Indian people for that matter, except on the master and servant and shopkeeper and uh, customer level, he realized that there were people of substance and as Alan Payton put it at the end of the trial, he was accused of coming to court by Utah in order to make a propaganda against the government and the white people in the country. Alan Payton said, no, I didn't come for that purpose. I came because I love my country. One day you will have to negotiate with the leaders of the black people in order to bring peace to this country. Put these men to death and you will have no one that will trust you to negotiate with. That's exactly what happened. So that was the most difficult. Was it also the most memorable? Yes. You know, to have to defend your friend on a capital charge is additional pressure. But the Delmas trial, the Changarai trial, they were all trials in which the people's 
if not lives, their freedom was at stake. Primarily, the cases that I have done had to do something with freedom to bring out discrimination, persecution, inequality, injustice. I didn't choose them in many respects. They chose me. Arthur Chaskelson says that there isn't anyone in the country or indeed in the world that he knows of who has done as many political cases as I have. I don't know whether that is true or not, and perhaps somebody can do a master's degree <laughs> on it one day. But I was flattered that people chose me when they had their back to the wall. When I joined the Legal Resources Center in 1992, I thought that political trials are over, you know, and uh, I would just uh, carry on uh, making lots of money in uh, commercial cases. But that wasn't to be, because the Legal Resources Center had to do a number of inquests right at the beginning, like the Gunnewa inquest, the Shell House inquest. But uh, the Changarai case was another here. I thought that I would never do another treason trial. We were on holiday in Greece on top of a hill by the sea. We got a three-page letter from the attorney and the two advocates that had been briefed for Changarai. And they said they came to the conclusion I was the most suited because of my experience to do the case. I was there with my wife and uh, I showed her the letter. I thought that she would have said enough is enough, but she never said that in her life. And she said, well, there's a telephone number there, isn't there? You better phone them back and tell them you'll take it. And they told me that it would last six weeks. It lasted almost a year. Johann Krichler says that my defendant Changarai really helped to get him acquitted because no judge could really convict him after everything that we brought out. It was a frame-up, and we exposed it for what it was. Did you get any flack from the ANC or the South African government for taking on that case? On the contrary. <laughs> they took a vicarious pleasure of my presence there, and uh, certainly no one highly placed from the president down ever suggested that I should not have done it. Cyril Ramaphosa came to me after the unbanning of the ANC. And I was a member of the ANC Constitutional and Legal Committee. And Cyril said, George, the national executive has uh, confirmed your membership of the committee. And I said, well, thank you, Cyril. Does this mean that I have to get a card? And he said, no, 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 there are some people who don't need a card. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, George, you've got to do everything but I'll try and get you an exemption from toy toy. <laughs> Having witnessed the evolution of the ANC from the middle of the last century, has it met your expectations in government? There is no one, in my opinion, that can do better. I'm critical of some of their decisions. I sometimes have to write to newspapers to remind our people who call me a comrade where we come from, particularly in relations to the judiciary and in relation to fundamental human rights and the introduction of terrorism legislation. There are many people in government who unfortunately are not living up to the standards, particularly in the second and third tier where people are hungry for power and 
hungry for money and are not always as honest as my friends Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, Governor Becky, Dumanokwe would have expected them to be. But that is government and uh, the temptations of committing acts of corruption for personal gain is there, particularly for people who were poor and they see others doing it and why not me? And it's an unfortunate thing about which I am not particularly pleased. I am upset by the poverty that there is. I am upset about the lack of quality education that there is. I am upset by the great chasm between the very rich and the very poor. I believe that we are slowly moving along the road of establishing an egalitarian society in which there is greater equality, greater justice, absolute equality and absolute justice are not of this world. <laughs> the only thing that we can do is really try our best to mitigate what is not happening. And I find comfort in quoting the great Democrat Pericles in ancient Athens, that there is no shame in admitting poverty. The real shame is in not taking positive steps to put an end to it. And I think that despite the fact that a lot of people say that nothing has changed, that's not correct. Mm. You go to the universities, you go to the banking halls, you go to the airways, the jobs that people do in factories without job reservation. Count the number of people that were at school before and the number of people at school now. True that some of it is not good education, but it can only improve. And this is why I'm optimistic about our future. I'm hoping what I have said in the book will bring home to the young people of where we come from. Looking back at your life, do you have any regrets? I didn't do all the cases as well as I could. <laughs> I lost someone. It's inevitable for someone who's honest with himself to say that I could have done better. But I have never apologized for anything that I did in my professional life. Did you as a Greek in South Africa experience racism? The Afrikaner nationalists regarded themselves as the owners of South Africa. The Anglo-Saxons as uh, welcome guests. The Mediter Southern Mediterraneans, as Jimmy Kruger said in relation to the Greeks, that they were here on sufferance. I got a message from uh, John Foster when he was prime minister that my rope was getting short. But he, on the other hand, is the one who relented and uh, actually said that um, I could have a passport uh, when he was approached by one of the judges. But he was probably hoping you wouldn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if he hoped that, he was wrong. But I have never complained of being ill-treated, mainly because, you know, the sort of jibe about the Greeks. And the, I had a lot of jibes during the period of the dictatorship in Greece. They say you talk about democracy and you want to teach us about democracy. Look at your mother country. I mean, you know, they've got dictators. And that was hurtful. 
But all these things were minor compared to the indignity that black people had to suffer. And uh, I couldn't complain about that. In fact, the country has been good to me, both professionally and personally. I've got support from all sections of the community, black and white and different ethnicities. I never felt that I was discriminated in relation to the work that I was offered. It's true that I wasn't a fashionable lawyer for the mining houses and uh, the big insurance companies, but uh, there's life without them.